welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Ina Quariel, and Philippe de la Matrac. And yes, that's a guy's name, but that's my pin name. <laughs> for enterprise stories and for video game stories. So we've been reading an enterprise, Star Trek Enterprise story called Alien Us. And because of that story being so different from anything Gabrielle would write, who normally would handle TV shows... Actually, I didn't even have Philippe before this story, but it was so different from anything Gabrielle would write, I created the pen name Philippe de la Matrac. Okay, I've already told that story, how that came to be and how it became to be de la Matrac many times, and it definitely did at the beginning of the story, so if you've been listening since the beginning, you know it. So, enough of that. We are now going to read chapter 7, and I don't remember a Again, whether it has anything graphic in it, anything gruesome, as I've been saying. If I find there is, I will put in a 10-second placer that I will then go back after I'm all done and edit with the timestamp of the second little music clip that I play called The Telling. And that's just the name of it. It comes in the interludes and anchor. And after that, I do the summary and the commentary. So you can just listen to the comment. If you're too squeamish, you can just listen to the summary and the commentary and skip the gruesome parts. That's the best I can do. Let's get started on Chapter 7. Star Trek Enterprise Alien Us by Philippe de la Matrac. Chapter 7. What Beiju had thought Kare was asking about in the buffet line the other day was only a week or two away by his best estimate. The aliens were healing well, and Dr. Bishte had waited only until Dr. Burha came on shift to begin removing stitches. The females' bleeding had tapered off and finally stopped, so Dr. Bishte felt it was time for them to get up and move around and eat food for themselves. Burha and Hennath worked on the female while Beiju tackled the male's leg and Bishte started on the torso. Dr. Bishte talked as he did so, hoping to get the male familiar with his words and voice so that one day he might decide to respond. From the vacant look on the male's face, Beiju did not think he ever would. They would have to make him talk, and Beiju didn't really want to think about how they would go about making him talk. He was a scientist, and sometimes science required sacrifices from its subjects, but Beiju never relished causing another creature pain. As it was, the male flinched ever so slightly as the stitches were pulled free. Removing the stitches took several hours, and the male never uttered a sound, much to Dr. Bishte's chagrin. We can't even begin to understand each other if you don't speak, he told the male in frustration. Can't you even just tell us your name? We've told you hours, and I know you understand that much. But the male was not even watching him. The female, on the other hand, was watching, though she never sp spoke either. Finally, they were done. Beiju removed the long tube from the male's stomach, leaving only the small tube with the sealing valve for when they'd use it again. He did the same with the blood and air tubes on the side of his neck. Dr. Bishte removed the catheter, which, the result of which was the confirmation that the male had a voice. He had not said anything unless a grunt was part of their language. Beiju rather thought it had more to do with pain. The female was not comfortable when hers was removed either. Two mattresses were brought in, and a movable wall was pushed back to create a semi-private area for relieving themselves. Doctors Bishte and Burha helped the aliens to sit up and supported them as they stood. The post-surgical beds were removed, and the machines were pushed to the far wall. Beiju and Hinath worked to remove the blood containers and dispose of biohazardous equipment. 
That done, they helped the aliens to walk to where the mattresses were lay laying against one wall. Neither had been on their feet for two weeks, and so had some difficulty walking and sitting down again. The female scooted close to the male, and they locked arms again as they watched the scientific team leave. Hoshi sighed once they were gone. She put her head down, letting her hair fall around her face like a curtain, and she smiled. Beside her, Malcolm raised his eyebrows in question. Something he said to you, she whispered, barely louder than a breath and close to his ear. We couldn't understand each other if you didn't speak. Which is why it's a good thing they aren't speaking to you, Malcolm breathed back. So this is home. Hoshi looked around. It was basically as bare as their individual rooms had been, only now there was no window at all, but a camera on the wall opposite the machines. Absently, she reached a hand to her neck, her right hand, and felt the stubs of tubes still in her neck. Her throat constricted and tears began to well up in her eyes. They had not taken them out because they were not done needing them. Malcolm pulled her hand down gently but firmly and squeezed it. We survived it. She looked up at him and brushed his hair from his face with her left hand. His eye was not covered anymore, but it did not look right. It was red and swollen. Can you see? She tapped onto his hand. Blurry, he tapped back. Do you hurt? Ache, she answered. Malcolm nodded his head toward the wall behind him. Hoshi let go of his hand, and they both scooted back so they could lean against it. She tried to fight it, but she sniffed, still trying not to cry. She laid her head on Malcolm's shoulder, not caring one bit if it was proper for a junior officer to do that. The only part of duty she was holding on to was the order not to communicate with them or for them. Otherwise, she was just a young woman who had been violated and traumatized, and Malcolm was a friend who had just lived through the same, though he was still an officer in her point of strength. She did not mind at all when he laid his cheek up against the top of her head. The lone orc arrived earlier in the evening than before, just after the heat lamps came on. Malcolm and Hoshi had already lain on the new so-called beds, the mattresses on the floor. They each had one pillow and a sheet to cover themselves. They slept head to head so they could still whisper softly while covering their heads with the sheets or simply hold hands. Malcolm had been asleep, but he woke with a start when the door opened. His latest version of his near-constant nightmare had him on edge anyway. He pushed himself up with his good arm until he was sitting with his back to the wall. Hoshi woke up too, but did not get up. She just watched. The orc scientist did not have a smaller apprentice or helper like Saruman and Lurtz. He did, however, have something in his hands. He handed a little bottle down to Malcolm and then pointed to his own eye. The bottle was labeled with a clear picture of an eyeball. Eye drops. Easy enough to understand. Malcolm actually found himself a little grateful. His eye was sore and dry and sensitive to the light. Then the orc handed him two bands of red material. There was a small device on the center and Velcro on the ends. One was larger than the other. The orc wrapped his fingers around his wrist and then pointed to Malcolm's left arm. He repeated it until Malcolm finally wrapped the larger one around his left wrist. It was rather like a wristwatch, but of course he did not understand the display. 
The orc apparently was not satisfied as he bent down and took Malcolm's wrist, repositioning the display so that it sat against the underside of his arm, and, and he fastened it tighter. When he was done, he stood back and patted his own chest and a familiar rhythm of the heartbeat. Pulse. Malcolm realized it measured his pulse and probably transmitted it somewhere else for monitoring. Innocuous enough, and probably helpful, as these people obviously wanted them alive. The orc pointed to Hoshi, so Malcolm handed the smaller one to her, and she wrapped it correctly around her left wrist that still looked bruised and marked by long, though healing, cuts. That accomplished, the orc took a small device from a pocket on his outer garment and turned it on. He nodded sharply as if satisfied and tucked the device away again. Then he left, and Malcolm decided he was glad he hadn't tried to talk to him or tell him his name. Maybe, he thought, he would just call that one Radagast, another wizard who helped Saruman, though he was not evil and did not realize Saruman was. The name did not fit exactly, but it worked in that he had points both for and against this orc. He was an orc, but he did not seem quite as annoying as the other two. Malcolm had no way of knowing if Radagast had taken part in the vivisection as he had not been able to see, but he had to think it likely that he had, so he was still not one of the good guys. Malcolm lay back down. Radagast, he whispered in Ho into Hoshi's ear. Not Denethor, she asked just as quietly. Not in charge of anything, I don't think, he argued back. Hoshi yawned. Radagast it is, she conceded, but she did not close her eyes. I hate sleeping, she admitted. Nightmares, Malcolm deduced. He had them too. Wish I could fight off the demons for you, but I've got my own to contend with. She smiled at that. You fight mine and I'll fight yours. He felt better just seeing her smile. Deal, he told her, then opened his hand. She put hers in it and closed her eyes. Malcolm did the same and fervently hoped they could both have happy dreams, even if only this once. Maybe they are telepathic, Kenu, the linguist, stated after watching the tapes. While in the beds, they put their hands together. Now they put their heads together. But they still don't make a sound. Well, except when they sleep. But none of those sound like words, more like just restless sleep, like having nightmares might cause someone to whimper in his sleep or even cry out. Well, they're not trapped in the beds anymore, Fishte replied. He rewound the present video from the day before. They've been loose in that room for three days. What about the way they interact? Can it tell us anything? Socially, Beju spoke up tentatively. It was not his place, really, even though Dr. Bishte encouraged him to reason out the evidence. Go on, Bishte said. He interacts with her, Beju told him, far more than we would with a female. Yes, Bishte agreed, but why? Is it just because they're the only two of their species here? Loneliness? Maybe they're bonded, Kinu suggested. They could be mates. Except that we've seen little in their behavior that could be considered mating, Bishte held. He was leaning against the counter. They may not feel up to it yet, Beju said. They might still be sore. True enough. Bishte stopped the video and fast forwarded again. He slowed down at a particular point. The female had gone to the toilet with inside of the male, but the male had turned his back to her. If we're watching a courting in progress, he would be rejecting her. He sped the video forward again to a point where the two were sitting together, shoulder to shoulder, holding hands. 
This would contradict that, and yet even here he shows no sign of arousal. They are aware of the camera, Kinu pointed out. It's why they cover their heads. They don't use their hands to convey the meanings. You've seen the way he ignores you when you talk to him. What about the tapping? Beiju asked, obviously changing the direction the conversation was taking. Have you found any patterns? Three, Kinu stated, but it's like they repeated a song, if it was music. Only the end was different, but that's just as difficult. More. He flipped the video off. Assume it was code, even a song with meaning to cover a message. We don't know the song or the words. Or maybe the tapping isn't musical at all. They'd have to break words up to pass in taps, so letters. We know they have letters from the insignia on their uniforms. We have to figure out which tapping sequence represents which letter, and we don't even know if all of their letters are represented in the insignia, nor do we know how to pronounce them. Even if we could determine the letters, we would still need words. What do these letters mean? At this, he took out a pen and scratched E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E on a pad of paper. One is repeated three times, another twice. That's all I can tell you. He crumpled up the paper and threw it into the trash. We need a place to start, some commonality. Their names would be a place to start. If the male said his name, we might match it to the letters on the front of his uniform, which contains two of the letters that were used in that other word. Hers did also. We could use images and have them name the image, a ship, a tree, things they might have on their world as well, like a sun, the day, and night. But in any case, we need them to talk. We haven't tried talking to the female, Beiju stated. He was not sure, but if everything else he knew was in question, maybe the fact that all females were inferior and feeble-minded could be questioned too. If the male doesn't understand, Bishte argued, the female certainly won't. And if he is determined not to communicate, she is apparently following his lead. How can we make them talk? Kinu asked. That's a dangerous question. Bishte stood up straight. The colonel would love to answer it, I'm sure, but he'd likely kill them in the process. And limit their ability to talk, Kinu said, agreeing. He sighed. We need them alive. They've got no way to escape. No one has come back for them yet. They're not likely to. They can't hold out forever. How long have you ever been able to stay silent? Besides, we still wouldn't have a basis for understanding anything Geyser could get out of them. Bishte placed a hand on Kinu's shoulder. I'm glad we agree. Beiju was glad, too. He was surprised to realize how tense he'd become at the suggestion of Colonel Geyser making them talk. Be careful what you report, Bishte added, or the colonel will use it against them. He pointed to the screen that showed the live camera feed. And us. Hoshi was surprised to find she had slept through the night, still with her hand in Malcolm's. It was the ache that woke her more than the nightmares. She didn't remember the details, but had no problem knowing the gist of the dream she had had. They had been the same since she had woken up from being cut open by the orcs. Orcs. One bright spot in her new existence was that little bit of humor Malcolm was keeping up. She really didn't think she could manage here alone, and Malcolm wasn't the first person she would have chosen to be stuck on an alien planet with. He surprised her. He had gone through what she had and was still strong, still hopeful, and still there to help her through. And yet, she realized, that he had been like that before. When Tarkin had contacted her, she had first turned to Malcolm, and not just because he was the head of security for the ship. 
He was strong, but he never blustered about it. For all his love of symmetrical explosions, he had a kind interior that came out when it needed to. She had seen it on the Zindi ship after she'd been rescued from the reptilians. The captain was harsh then, but Malcolm comforted her while he still encouraging her to do what the captain needed. His strength made her stronger. She wanted to melt into a puddle of tears for what the orcs had done and were going to do. He reminded her that she was a Starfleet officer. And she really wished they would let him shave, she realized, as she watched him still sleeping. It didn't seem right seeing him disheveled and out of uniform. The door opened and he jerked awake. The smaller one came in alone, the one who usually came with Saruman. He carried a tray with two plates and two bowls. He greeted them with an equivalent of, "'Good morning,' and then set the bowls and plates in front of them. Cups would be easier, she thought, but realized their physiology probably wouldn't work well with cups. Hoshi was glad to have the water, though, and the food. The fruits were really quite good, and she hadn't eaten anything with her mouth since the day before they'd taken her from her solitary room. The little orc handed a smaller container to Malcolm. Kishanita, he said. Malcolm tilted the container so she could see there were two pills inside. Kishanita, the orc repeated, pointing now to Malcolm's right arm and his eye. Hoshi put her hand on the back of Malcolm's shoulder and tapped pain there, where the orc couldn't see her doing it. Malcolm still eyed it suspiciously and only removed one pill after the orc repeated himself again. He handed the pill to her while he kept his eye on the orc. Hoshi took the pill and washed it down with water from the bowl. Malcolm finally did likewise, and the orc nodded and left. Once they had finished eating their meager breakfast, Hoshi stacked her plate onto Malcolm's, and he took her bowl to stack them on the plates. He moved them to the end of the, his mattress and le then leaned his head down to whisper, He pushed himself up to his feet and headed to the blocked-off area that housed their toilet and a small sink. Hoshi turned away to give him some privacy and tried to comb her hair with her hands. She had nothing better to do. About an hour or so later, it was really difficult to tell, a new orc entered pushing a cart into the room with what looked like a thick monitor on it. He plugged it in below the camera and switched it on. The monitor's screen lit up with what seemed to her like a children's show. Cartoon lizards, unlike the two species she had already seen, were counting brightly colored blocks as they appeared, and thus Hoshi learned their words for six through ten. The scene changed, and, the, and two new lizards came on the screen from opposite directions. They greeted each other, introducing their names. Hoshi realized what they were trying to do, and apparently Malcolm did too. He turned away from the monitor and sighed. Hoshi dropped her gaze to her lap. She did not need the images. The orc turned the volume up and left. We could turn it off, she whispered. I don't think they'd like that, Malcolm replied. Then his mouth quirked up into a grin. So let's do it. A few minutes later, the orc came back and turned it back on. He stayed behind a good 15 minutes before he left again. This time, Hoshi did the honors, unplugging the unit from the wall. When the orc returned, he was not alone. Saruman and his little aide was with him. The new guy moved to the cart while the little one moved one of the machines away from the back wall. Then, then Saruman and the new guy hefted the monitor to the top of the, that machine, plugging it into the back before the little one pushed the machine back against the wall. The monitor came to life. Malcolm valiantly tried to unplug it when they were gone, but the machines were too heavy in his weakened state. 
Even if he had moved it, Hoshi realized they would never reach the plug. It was too high on the machine. You tried, she said as she sat back down. I'm worried, he whispered back. She replied, this is elementary. They can't teach tactical words and complex adult ideas in a children's show. Besides, I'm not Hoshi. She smiled behind her hair. I'm Frodo, and our quest is to destroy the ring. Malcolm nearly laughed and had to duck his head. That ought to confuse them, he said. With a sigh, they sat back against the wall and tried to drown out the drone of the program as it reran over and over again. Well, if nothing else, Beju said, sitting down now that he was back in the observa observation room, we've seen concrete evidence of their intelligence. No mammals on our world would do that without training, Kenu agreed, nodding his head. They don't want to learn. And that is concrete evidence of their intelligence, too, Vishte added. How so, doctor? Beju still stood near the door. He had not really thought about intelligence. He had actually found it a bit comical when Kenu had had to go back to turn on the media display only to have the female unplug it. Why would they not want to learn our language or talk to us? Vishte asked. This time, I want you to think as if you were in their place. What would your reaction be? You are stranded on an alien world of lesser technology with little or no hope of rescue. Beju thought about his answer, and then his face lit up. Doctor! They may be saying something about their culture. Now it was Bishte's turn to ask. How so? Some might want to share information or bargain it for a better position than a subject of study, Beju answered, sitting down in the only other empty seat. Why would they withhold it? or try to control the avenues of communication by refusing or communicate in, in, in either language. They may be afraid of what we would do with that information. They may be trying to keep our culture from changing artificially. They could impose their technological knowledge and even try to usurp us with their power. They are doing the opposite. Or they could be spies sent on reconnaissance to see if we are a worthy target for invasion, Kinu conjectured and thus don't want us to find out their technology and create a better defense. Both apt hypotheses, Mishte said, smiling. Perhaps we need a socialist on our team to sort out which is closer to the truth. I hope mine, Beju admitted. If they can travel to other worlds, I'm not certain we can defend if their people should invade. Do you have a video from when they arrived? Kenu asked. Dr. Bishte shrugged. Only security tapes, I'm afraid. We didn't know we'd find aliens when we went out to see what crashed. Their individual rooms weren't equipped. Will it work? Beju interrupted, pointing to the video feed from the aliens' room. The program, I mean. Can anybody learn a language just from passively hearing it? He had been wondering that as he watched the two aliens resolutely not looking at the media display. Kenu blew out a deep breath. Passively? I've never heard of such a thing, except, of course, in infants, as their brains are still forming. Purposely listening with no visual media on the other side would take a genius. I can't think of anyone who could on our world. We learn new languages from adolescence into adulthood by listening, but also memorization, translation, and interpretation, or at least having an image or hearing someone tell us what vocabulary word represents it. Beju sighed. 
That was what he was thinking. If they did not watch, they would not learn even the simplest things like how to count to ten or give a greeting. Kenu smiled conspiratorially, but how many of us could completely ignore a working media display when it's the only other stimulus in the room? They'd have to be incredibly stubborn, Bishte agreed. But alas, science stands still for no scientist, linguist, or biologist. It will remain in the room, and they will be free to ignore it. We must press on with our studies. I plan to talk to, with Dr. Bishte this afternoon about their reproduction and sexuality. It would be helpful if the aliens would simply follow nature's course and we observe, but I fear they will be just as stubborn in that regard. Kinu held up a hand. That is not my department, so he said, so I'll leave it to you biologists. Oh, Bishte teased. I would have thought you'd be bored enough to broaden your field of interest in light of the fact that they haven't given you one solid word to work with. True, Kinu admitted, but I think that is something private. If one should be lucky enough to be chosen to fulfill the quota, it should be kept between him and the female. Bishte patted him on the arm as he stood. A noble sentiment, but if we scientists held to that sentiment too tightly, we'd never learn anything. Come, Beju, he said. I think we have some reports to work on. Life had once again been reduced to a mundane routine for Malcolm and Hoshi. For once, Malcolm did not begrudge the boredom. Routine meant no surprises, no torture. It had been a few weeks since they were taken off the machines, and by now the orcs did not even come around but once or twice a day. Radagast didn't even come at night. The smaller ones came by for food, and the video droned on and on with children's programs. Otherwise, Hoshi and he were left alone. But they never forgot about the camera. They still hid their hands when they tapped in Morse code, and only whispered when it could be camouflaged in some way, and only extremely quietly so that the camera's sound system wouldn't pick it up. They were both still a bit achy in the ribs, but their arms and legs had healed well, and that was the biggest problem with their routine. Few people would have ever accused Malcolm Reed of being an optimist. He knew they were not done. There were so many places the orcs hadn't really explored. Faces, throats, backs, brains, lungs, etc. Those things had not been cut into, and the tubes had been left in their necks and stomachs. The routine was only a respite, a respite in which their bodies would heal from the trauma of the first procedure. Malcolm had given up on his idea to keep in shape in his previous respite. While it would help him to stay in shape for their eventual, he hoped, rescue, not keeping in shape might slow the healing of his body in some small way, and that might just delay the orc's plans for the next procedure. So he and Hoshi were quiet most of the time, and communication was kept to simple things like short questions and answers. There were occasions when Hoshi's doubts got the better of her, especially at night. She'd ask about Enterprise and what might be keeping the captain from finding them. Was there something in the walls that interfered with the sensors? Was the thing that brought the shuttle down keeping them away? But surely, by now, they could have found a way around it. And every time he found some way to encourage her, to put forth a possible excuse for the captain's tardiness. Telling her so felt hollow, and yet, somehow, he clung to what he said as a shred of hope. Hoshi awoke when the door opened. The heat lamps were off, so she reckoned it was morning. Malcolm sat up on his mattress and rubbed his eye. He still had trouble with that occasionally, but like everything else, he lived with it. 
Both of them had slept through the night with few interruptions. She knew she was getting used to having nightmares. She wished they'd stop, but the boredom alone made passing hours without consciously noting them worth the horrific sights and sounds of her dreams. She sat up and realized right away that something was wrong. She felt wet and a bit achy. She pulled back her sheet to peek and confirmed her suspicions. It had been three weeks. Only now there were no ba new bandages to grab. The smaller one had come into the room with their breakfast. She had to let him know somehow. They provided her with gauze before, but now how was she supposed to use it if they did it again? She was not confined to a bed with a catheter taking care of her needs. She had to get up and walk now and then. She felt her face flushed with heat and tears welled up in her eyes. She was tired of crying, but also tired of being exposed and embarrassed in this way. Back on the ship, she and the other women had pills that prevented their cycles. They didn't have to worry about it interfering with their duties. But even when they did decide to have their periods, there were discreet ways of dealing with it. Holding a rag between one's legs was so antiquated that Hoshi wasn't sure how the women of the past had handled it. There had been disposable pad pads that stuck to underwear with adhesive. The orc was ready to leave. She had to do something. She couldn't just let it run down her leg or get all over the sheets. Already the bottom sheet was soiled and would need changing. The top was still clean, thankfully, but it gave her an idea. Back in college, she and her classmates had some sometimes worn sheets for toga parties. She pulled off the top sheet, exposing the red stain for the orc to see. It startled him, but he bobbed his head at her before rushing out of the room. He returned quickly with several gauze pads and a pail lined with plastic. He also had another sheet under his arm. He put set the pail by her mattress and handed the pads to her. She grabbed them quickly and, picking up her discarded sheet, moved quickly to the lavatory area. There, at least, she had some a little privacy. Since the orcs hadn't seen fit to return any of their clothes, she had to make do with what she had. The garment she had been given wasn't much more than a sheet itself. It tied at her left shoulder and hip and came down to her mid-thighs. It wasn't entirely comfortable, but she gathered it to tie between her legs, thus providing a crotch of sorts to hold the pad in place. But she decided discomfort was the lesser evil in this case. Dignity mattered more to her right then. The sheet she had brought along made a fair toga as she draped it around her waist and shoulders. When she emerged from behind the dividing wall, Malcolm, who was still sitting behind the orc, gave her a smile. The orc simply stared. He had replaced the stained sheet, which now hung from his gloved, three-fingered hand. Then he caught himself and left the room. Nice work, Malcolm whispered as they dipped their heads over their food. Very innovative. Maybe, she replied. Beiju tossed the sheet in the laundry chute and his gloves into the biohazard bin. Then he quickly washed his hands. He couldn't wait to see Dr. Bishte. The doctor was in the observation room with Kenu, reviewing the tapes from, of the previous night. Kenu did not appear too interested. He pushed back his chair as Beiju entered. How can they be this boring and be space travelers? He asked in frustration. Dr. Bishte ignored it for the outburst it was, and Beiju followed suit. She started her cycle again, he reported. Bishte flipped the screen to the live feed. Already? It has been only about 20 days since she stopped bleeding last time. Could they be that fertile, doctor? Beiju asked. That would be 13 times in one year. 
It's obviously possible, Fishday replied, though he sounded a bit in awe of the implications, too. We know some large mammals mate as often as twice a year. How many offspring would they have at once? Kenu asked, joining in even though the topic was outside his specialty. If they had multiples, they could reproduce exponentially. We'd also have to know their gestational period, Beju corrected. If it was long enough, they might they still might only reproduce once a year. True, Bishte replied. He stood up and began pacing in his excitement. And how are their offspring born? Are they birthed live as with our mammals? And in what condition? How long until an infant is autonomous? There are so many questions we could answer by breeding them. And it might just force them to talk or at least act more naturally by caring for an infant. If they even care for their young, Kinu added. Besides, how can we make them mate if they won't do it themselves? We can't just ask them, and if they're this stubborn about talking, I doubt they'll just ask, acquiesce. Bishte nodded. Unfortunately, that's true. We'd have to forgo natural mating, and to prepare for artificial methods, we do need to do some more studying. Beju, prepare a semen collection kit for the male. Beju nodded, trying to decide which kit would be the appropriate size. Cinema were comparable in size. What dosage, doctor? Twelve cc ought to do it, Dr. Bishte agreed. And the female, Beju asked. With her bleeding right now, she wouldn't be fertile, but they really didn't know enough about her cycle to know why she was bleeding. We'll examine her reproductive systems more thoroughly in the next exploratory procedure. Doctors Burha, Enesh, and I agreed on, the, on a date this week, but we'll, ha we'll wait for her bleeding to stop. He won't cooperate, Beju reminded. He was sure the male would fight after the last procedure. Take a bed, Bishte ordered. Get Hinath to help you. Just get everything prepared until he arrives. We'll need restraints and maybe someone to control the female. Beju left to gather the equipment. He tried telling himself that it was no different than collecting semen from a cinemai, but cinemai weren't sentient. <laughs> Okay, that was chapter seven. I do hope the whispering came through good enough. I listened to a bit and it seemed to. But let's get on with the summary. Now, there, I didn't find anything too gruesome in here. A little bit personal, maybe. Um, a little bit TMI, some pe people might think. Again, with the menstruation and a discussion of semen collection. We'll get to that. At the beginning of the chapter, we have uh, Beju's point of view and basically just telling us that they have taken them out of the beds, they moved them to mattresses on the floor to let them continue healing and interact with each other. Bishte was getting a little frustrated that Malcolm wouldn't even try to understand or, or to give his name even, um, that they never understand each other if he doesn't speak. Um, so as you know, there's a little bit of frustration there with the lack of communication. In the second scene, we're back with Hoshi, and she turns her head and lets her hair kind of cover her face from the camera, and she whispers very quietly. I mean, I had to whisper kind of loud so it would pick up in here, but basically she's just doing a whisper that's just barely more than a breath. If I do this, you probably won't even hear it at all. I'll hold the phone close, though. Hello. If you heard hello right there, that was about as quiet as it was. Um... I could barely hear myself when I did it. All right. So they have this added way to say longer things. They can still tap 
And they do at the toward the latter half of this scene. They go back to tapping. Can you see? Blurry. Do you hurt? Ache. Um, but they have the opportunity to use, you know, whole sentences and just to go ahead and talk if they hide behind their hair. And you've got to understand, it's been a month and a and well, it's been 60 some, some odd days. So Malcolm's hair would have grown somewhat, maybe not as long as Hoshi's because hers was long to start with and his beard is, is grown and his mustache. So um, they can use her hair if they put their heads together. They can turn away from the camera. Um, there's ways they can do this now. Um, but they still have to be super quiet when they do. Otherwise, the camera might pick it up. All right. So then we switch to Malcolm's point of view as the late night guy comes in. This would be Ennis. She names him Radagast. And he gives him eye drops for his eye and these monitors that go on their wrist that give them kind of their um, vitals, especially their pulse. In the next scene, we meet the linguist, Kenu. So we have a new player on the field. Kenu is just that. He's a scientist. He's a winged and he is a linguist. He, so he's, his main focus is communication and language. And so they discover, you know, they they discuss some uh, possibilities about their um, reasons for not, uh... no, nope, I'm getting ahead of myself. But they do discuss the lettering on the uniforms and he writes out the word enterprise and notes that, you know, the, le the letters that are in common, like enterprise has three E's, you know, things like that and, and two R's. And he points them out, but, you know, how it kind of spells out how hard it would be to take a language and try to figure out what the letters mean, what they sound like, and how what the word means, and how to pronounce the word. It's, you know, it's not an easy thing to do if you don't have any sort of basis for it. I have this book. I'm going to go ahead and tell you about it. Um, I think you'll uh, encounter something similar later on in this story. It's called Chestina Procisenza. Check for foreigners. And I have this book when I lived in the Czech Republic and I was trying to learn some of the language. And basically it had this one page on the front and until I could get past that page, I could not even learn. And it was a picture of a classroom and it said things like Vizadu Yekrida. And so I had, you know, once I learned what that Vizadu, no, Vizadu Dveje, I can't remember what in front is. Anyway, <laughs> Vizadu's behind, and it's been a while. Anyway, it, it, it described the room and, and the tables in it and things. And once I, I, I had, the picture made it work because the krida was in front. I could I could get that sentence together because the door was in the back. I could get that sentence together because the table was there and there was a radio on the table. I could get those things because the there was a, on the left or right, there was a window, okno. I could get it. I needed something to base those words on. And eventually something to tell you how to pronounce. And usually I had to hear someone. The R with a hot check was the hardest. Um, when I had my uh, dictionary, before I went, 
I could figure out the C with a hot check. It was ch. And I could figure out S with a hot check, sh. And I could figure out Z with a hot check, j. But I couldn't figure out R with a hot check. It said RZH, a rolled sound. Like, that's going to help. <laughs> I had to listen to people say it and then try to say it. It took me two weeks. I can now teach people to do it very quickly. You roll an R, but you put your teeth together. And the sound you get right at the end when you put your teeth together, that's it. That is the R with a hot check. And I've been told by checks that I do a beautiful R. So once I learned it, that's how I can say Krida. It's got one of those in it. Um, it's it's kind of fun to say Krida, Krida, Krida. It's kind of fun to say those words that have it in there. My favorite meal is Prirodni Veprovi Rizek Ceseram Sanoki Setatasko Machka. Had a couple of those R with a hot checks and some other regular R's, which are rolled. All right. Anyway, that's enough check. So it, it's not easy to just learn a language just by hearing it or reading it. It took the Rosetta Stone for people to start understanding Egyptian hieroglyphs. It was lost until the Rosetta Stone, which had the same things being written in Sanskrit, Latin, and Egyptian, if I'm right. If I, I think it was those three. I think it was Latin, Sanskrit, and and if you knew Latin and if you or you knew Sanskrit, then you could get that that Egyptian part put together because it meant the same thing as those. That that started the ability to understand the hieroglyphs. So it's not an easy thing that Kenu has to do here, especially when the subjects are refusing to speak. All right, and the next scene. Um, Oh, 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 go back to that other scene. They, they pointed out that it's it's dangerous to be able, you know, to talk about forcing them to talk because if the military got them and forced them to talk, they might kill them. And so they want to be careful about how they report because they don't want them dead. Because if they're dead, they can't learn from, keep keep learning from them. Then we go on to Hoshi's point of view and... Uh, let's see. Oh, she learned some new words, Kashanita. And we heard, well, they're not our first words in this language. We heard the letters for, or the number, the numbers one through five. And now we've heard Kashanita, which means for pain. So this is uh, the medicine they were given for pain. And then they move in a TV screen with children's shows on it. And... <laughs> She said um, uh, cartoon lizards that didn't look like the two they'd already known. So these would be the monitors. And so they, the monitors showed how they counted to 10. So now she knows how to say 6 through 10. We didn't learn it, though. Um, and then um, they did introductions. And Malcolm and Hoshi got a little uh, mischievous. And um, Malcolm turned off the TV. And then when Kenu turned it back on, Hoshi unplugged it. So then they came in and they put it up on top of the, one of the big machines to do the life support and plugged it in behind that. And Malcolm couldn't get to it to unplug it and they couldn't reach it to turn it off. So they're kind of out of luck. They just have to let it drone on in the background and they still ignore it. 
Well, and that uh, little mischievous action gave the uh, scientists something to talk about. It's like, whoa, they just did something. Interesting, though, they, they mentioned their intelligence, and yet they still don't talk to Hoshi. And But they did say something about their own females um, being inferior. So that's something to think about. And then Kenny points out, <laughs> I like this, but how many of us could completely ignore a working media display when it's the only other stimulus in the room? How often do we watch the TV that's on, even if we're not watching that channel, just because it's on? <laughs> Aren't we just like that? And so they're incredibly stubborn. And they talk about, oh, it would be great if we could mate them. And uh, Kenu is a little bashful about that, thinks that needs to be private and he's not a biologist. Um, but they also point out that they probably resist that too. And then we move ahead a couple weeks and we get to the mundane routine and Hoshi getting her period. Well, actually not yet. This is a Malcolm scene and they talk about the routine, but the routine means it's going to end eventually and they're going to probably do something again. So it's, it's a little tough, but he does keep finding ways to be strong for her and to encourage her. And then Hoshi wakes up and finds out that she has um, her period. And she points out, <laughs> well, she, she ties her shift together between her legs to make a crotch. And then she uses her other, the, the top sheet that wasn't soiled to make a toga of sorts. So, <laughs> and Malcolm says in a whisper, uh, how innovative and, uh, are very innovative, and she says, maybe, but it doesn't help the cramps. Be glad you're not a woman right now. So, yeah, there's, uh, sometimes it's advantage woman, sometimes it's not. And then we get the last scene where they discuss, again, or they discuss or Beju thinks about their reproductive cycle. If she's gotten her cycle again, if she's gotten her, her men she's menstruating again, that means 13 times a year, if you think of 10 months of 40. And I think it's 10 months, maybe it's 11. Anyway, 13 times a year, she would get that period. And that means, oh gosh, if they had six babies at once, they could, um, you know, and gestated quickly, they could exponentially multiply. But, you know, we know <laughs> the way humans work. <laughs> we know that, uh, you know, you can have intercourse once and become pregnant, or you can have intercourse a bunch of times and not get pregnant. And it could happen somewhere in the, in the middle, you know, who knows, but nine months, nine to 10 months is, is the gestational period for a human. They don't know that. So generally speaking, a human being will only have one child in a year. Now, some people have had, you know, like 11 months apart. So it, you know, it can work. But generally speaking, one child a year, they don't know that. They still don't know. And a baby giraffe is born and it gets up on its feet and it's ready to walk. That's a very quick thing. Same with gazelles and things like that, but not human babies. We take a long time for them to be independent it takes quite a while to get to adulthood. An adult, a, a baby kitten will be an adult at one year. It takes 18, 19, 20 of those for a human to become a, a, an adult. 
it takes a, a year or two for a baby to walk. So, but they don't know any of that. And they, they have no basis for knowing it. So they point out if they won't mate themselves, we may have to do it artificially. So they're going to prepare the semen collection kit. Yeah, so we know something's going to happen in chapter 8. And I might give that a squeamish warning when it happens. I told you that there was a certain thing I had to send my husband off into another room to write down a description. <laughs> That'll be in chapter 8. I, not word for word from his uh, description, but I took his you know, description to heart and, and, and wrote it the best I could without being too... Too graphic, because I'm still a prude, and that's just the way it is, and um, so it's not incredibly graphic, um, so a lot is left up to the imagination, I know that, but I'll still give a, a warning, um, maybe just for that scene when it's going to happen, so that we can, you know, somebody who's uh, squeamish can avoid it, Okay or prudish, or young, or whatever, okay? That is chapter 7. It is not a scene where, or ch a chapter where a lot of interesting things happen, but a lot of things set up what's going to happen further on. And so it's 30 chapters. It's not a, you know, action scene every chapter kind of story. It's not like that. There are times when it will seem slower than it will, you know, at times when it will seem faster. That's, it's just, pacing will vary. And this one, it's, it reads fairly short. It doesn't seem like a long, drawn-out chapter, but it, it doesn't have anything major, tra majorly traumatic or exciting happen. But we have to show that she has her period again. We have to show that they're getting ready to do something else. We have to show that there is a routine after the procedure and how anybody can get kind of used to it. And it is a reprieve. It is a respite. Um, we also had to introduce Kenu. We have to keep up the, the tension of we want to, we want them to talk, but how far can we push them? We don't want to let the, the military get a, you know, get a say in that because they will push them way too far. Okay. So I can't really think of anything else to say about chapter seven. So I'll draw it to a close. I would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, um, let me know. You can tweet me at Inhildi, I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I, or you can email me at Inhildi at gmail.com. I really would love to hear from you, and we'll see you tomorrow.